Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi, everyone. And third-year psychiatry resident Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hey, everybody. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Let's Get Psyched is not intended to replace mental health assessment and treatment. The information shared on the show is for educational purposes only. Well, on this episode of Let's Get Psyched, we're going to talk about documentation, medical tracking, but really the burgeoning era of open notes. And if you're not sure what that is, stay tuned. And to help us do that, we have joining us Dr. Tony Thrasher. Dr. Thrasher is a board-certified psychiatrist employed as the medical director for the Crisis Services Branch of the Milwaukee County Behavioral Health Division. He received a psychiatric training from Washington University in St. Louis at Barnes Jewish Hospital, and he is the current president of the American Association for Emergency Psychiatry. He's also a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and president-elect for both the Wisconsin Psychiatric Association and the Wisconsin Association of Osteopathic Physicians and Surgeons. And you can currently see him and hear him on the Psychiatric Times website, hosting a series of Mental Health Minute webinars. Also, fun fact, uh, we learned just before the show that you were born with an extra tooth. Is that is that true? Uh, that rumor is correct, sir, yes. <laughs> I, I, I take it it probably didn't cause any problems. They just kind of took it out. Uh, not that I can remember. It was removed at a very <laughs> young age. So uh, it hasn't caused any problems yet. Nothing I've heard of so far. Something uh, no, to be anxious about. No pre-existing about. traumas, but yes, well, we we will we'll see if this uh what what happens down the road, so to speak. I would say that here and now on this podcast, it has begun causing you problems, right? You're now you're now going to go out to all of these people who know about your your secret tooth. Yeah, they're going to ask me to smile a lot just to see if there was any remnants or anything along those lines. Well, thank you, Tony, for joining us. And I kind of want to kick things off with uh, maybe you could provide a little bit of background and history on this, uh, the open note uh, uh, issue and phenomenon and kind of controversy, perhaps. Um, can you give us a little background on how this came about? Absolutely, Aaron. And I, I think the background is important. Otherwise, as a, as a clinical provider, it kind of feels like this just got dropped on us out of nowhere, so to speak. So the idea of open charts and having patients have access to their charts has actually been around for decades. And for many people that are not seeing mental health physicians or mental health providers, they already have access to their charts for things like family practice visits, internal medicine visits, lab results. Uh, You'll see a lot of things with patient portals that are part of healthcare systems. But for most of the time, mental health records have remained out of that. And in fact, in many EHRs, those records will be blocked or behind certain firewalls. Uh, And for those people that are still on paper, they would even refer to it as process notes or therapy notes. Those were things that would be kept, so to speak, just for the provider. Um, However, uh, in the past two years, Congress has moved forward with two very specific, what they call final rules. Uh, One came from the inspector general, one came specifically from CMS or Medicare and Medicaid. And there was two parts to it. One was that all each all EHRs had to have the ability to share information between each other at some point in time, and that they had to have the ability to quickly present formatted notes to the patient. And then the second role was to tell the health systems and or the physicians and or the providers that you now have to comply with this 
and that patients have a right to see their notes. They don't specify a time. It doesn't mean the minute they walk out the door, but it does use the word timely, which usually implies a day or two. And it is that particular congressional act, it was part of the Cures Act, which had a lot of, of the COVID funding and relief funding in it. It was a bipartisan effort. There were no objections at the time. Uh, and now here we are uh, with the federal government kind of laying out this ground rule. And now I think many different healthcare delivery systems, whether you're in academics or a private health system, are all trying to figure out, we have an EHR, how do we make this work? Well, I think that you know one of the most difficult things for me as a psychologist um, is uh, some of the required information automatically from the get-go, like for assessment. For example, there's an it, it like I was in an organization where you had to assess the client's level of intelligence, and um, another one I went to, um, what's their level of insight? And this this is at the assessment part. So I, I and uh, you know, and, I, and again, I've been a part of, of the open note uh, situation. I, um, I I was part of an organization that had two screens. Like one screen was was pointed toward the cl- the client. And they would see everything that I I typed in. Now I would hold off on inputting the uh, what is your intelligence? What's my my quick estimate of the intelligence of the person the, the after meeting with them for thirty minutes. Um, so that that was a little rough, and I kind of kept that toward the end, and hoping they wouldn't check too clearly. I've never heard of that before. Oh of gosh, that oh, really? that's part of our. Oh, the two. Yeah, there's where one's pointed. Like so, in vivo, you're they're seeing what you're writing. Yeah, and I and I have to say that at the clinic I was at, I was the, I was the director of this clinic. That I, I noticed that most psychiatrists turned it off. I did. I did. I wasn't too much of a nanny on them um, for that because they could still ask for it. But what are your thoughts about uh, about but the, uh, the information that can just immediately at the get go of the assessment part just kind of um, direct the treatment to a, a direction you don't want it to go? I think you are calling out what a lot of people are noticing, which, as with any decent technological advance, has an upside and has a downside. And I, while I do believe there are many upsides, which we'll probably talk about, I think you're bringing up one of the big downsides to a point, which is even though the patients have access to the information, not all of them may choose to get the information. So to your earlier point about double screens, I know some places that have stopped doing that because the way the rule is, is it's up to the patient if they want access. I've met with many patients who don't want to access it. They like knowing that they can. They have the ability to. It belongs to them. It's one of those things where now that it's not being kept from me, I am less suspicious. And actually, I don't need to look at it every single time. So I think that that part and that component is there. And with what you're mentioning specifically, Aaron, on the things like intelligence or other items that we have to put to be, you know, statutorily compliant with a certain evaluation or uh, to bill for certain E&M coding for, for certain components. I think sometimes if it's a sensitive issue, I try to prep the patient that there's going to be many things in there. And if you have any questions, please let me know. But I would also argue, and, and this is a bit of crossing the Rubicon here. So please, uh, I understand that it can have different emotions behind it. Part of me thinks a lot of times providers and the patients, one of the biggest problems they have is misunderstandings between each other. Um, Not fully getting what the other person thinks about them or thinks about the treatment. Even if the patient is going to have an issue with what you write, I think sometimes it might be good to get it out in the open early on. So for instance, if somebody is coming to me and they are highly invested in say a PTSD and a schizophrenia diagnosis, uh, and however, 
after my first visit, while I'm keeping those on the differential, what I'm really seeing is a very strong cocaine use disorder and maybe some generalized anxiety. For them to know that about my thinking and my process early on, I think it makes sense because you can have a great patient and a great doctor and it still is not going to work. And so I guess I would rather have both parties, particularly the patient, have some knowledge of where the provider is going in case they choose to seek services elsewhere. And I think that's something that's always kind of hard to hear because we're always wanting to help everybody in front of us at the utmost. But sometimes I think the best help we can do is by sometimes sharing with people that maybe our goals don't align. And my thought process is not what you're looking for. And rather than that dragging out two years and having multiple grievances along the way, we might be able to figure that out early on. Boy, that fits really with my thinking that it's better to just be open about who you are, what your thoughts are, as as they occur, and the and the you know the most uh, you know be as communicative and um and and as influential as you can, descriptive of, of your thinking as possible, so that the person can choose. It's just uh, you know if this is something that they want to continue on. I like that too. I guess one of the things that comes to mind in this conversation is uh, when you have a patient with schizophrenia who you know generally they they really don't want to acknowledge the diagnosis. I think it's you're you're spot on. I think any of our illnesses that really have a high degree of anosnosia, which always makes me think of schizophrenia continuum, I think that's something that I like to use with patients to say things such as, you're here to see me and I want to help you. And usually you're here because there's something I can help you with. We may not agree upon what to call it. I've treated some people with schizophrenia for decades who they would diagnose themselves with nerves or nervousness. And so in that context, Text, this is an interesting component that, that you bring up, Tosha, because in the old way, without a closed note, they may go their entire career saying, I see Dr. Thresher for my nerves, and he provides this nerve pill. We call it what a palaparidum, whatever it may be. <laughs> but then never really getting to, I may accidentally, by not sharing my thought process with her, one could argue I may be limiting her ability to develop insight over time. As opposed to saying, see this illness here, you may not fully agree with me. And if that's the case, that's fine. But let me tell you what it's about. It's not multiple personality. It doesn't mean you're crazy. I'd, I always describe schizophrenia to my patients as a communication disorder. It's a problem sharing information and receiving information. And in doing so, we start breaking down some of those bridges. So is it going to be complex? Absolutely. But I think it's a neat way to start the inside education. I think it's cool that you mentioned, um, and you 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 called it anosnosia, which is a different way of pronouncing it than I guess I'd only maybe I had only read it, and so I hadn't. I call it anosnosia, which also sounds I don't know, but uh, for our I think it, it's a fun radio uh, kind of learning moment. Um, it's the lack of insight about one's own symptoms or disease course. So like. Um, more severe psychiatric illnesses, you might be doing something that's incredibly disturbing or hurtful to others and not have a clue that it's going on. And I think that is the key word for this, for much of this episode. And, and uh, it's perfect describing the challenges we face because everything we said sounds really pretty. Um, you know, oh, let's be really open with the patients. But I, I think for me, at least what's stewing in the back of my mind is like, what, what about all the times when that really doesn't work? When... And, and I don't know that I have exact examples articulated, but I, I'll try to just think to my last week, like, okay, someone um, getting someone off benzodiazepines who's being tremendously disrespectful, right? Um, 
and you're just trying to kind of be able to process that in order to one be respectful back to them and then think about okay what's what what does this case actually need for me to document and just trying to make your brain run while you're feeling kind of un under attack that's probably a hard one to have going on two screens yeah i have to say uh, and i defer of course to other clinics that see it in a different fashion uh, for me, trying to construct the note in real time and have the patient read it, kudos to those that can do it. Kudos that have the time to, to do that in their day. But personally, especially since we are asking so much now of physicians in terms of documentation, that's what our entire talk today is about, is being very thoughtful and processed about how this would be. I would rather them take a couple extra minutes and do it without somebody looking over their shoulder. Uh, and I don't think that's going to affect best practices a great deal. If anything, though, if you do want to think about a way to kind of tie it to your patients and bring them in, I always start the subsequent visit with the question, so did you get a chance to look at the note? Did you want to look at the note? And how did I get everything? Did it work for you? And then right off the bat, you're, you're, you're calling it right out. You're not letting it fester. Was there anything I misunderstood? Was there more that I needed to know? Was my summary, but I wait till the next visit to do it, trying to do it in the visit, once again, I have extreme appreciation and admiration if somebody can pull it off, but I think that's hard. So so I actually do it in the visit more for selfish reasons. Um, and I've tried to I, I've tried to meet this like kind of sweet spot where I feel like I'm I'm making I'm reclaiming the note as as a, a tool of safety and structure for the visit. And so I'm telling the patient, like I start by copy forwarding my last note. And that starts as the template, right? And then I'm gonna delete everything from the last note, but I say, let us let me just remember what we talked about last time. I'll read a few of the things. And then last time, maybe I said like, how are the nightmares going? How's the PTSD going? And I'll keep that initial like nightmares colon and then like going better this time, blah, blah, blah. And and it, I'm making sure I don't forget something that way. And then um, I'm that sort of, too. you do that too? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's nice because I, I get the note done during the visit and I make the note kind of a part of, I make it like a, a another part. I, I When I'm typing, I try to type out loud, out loud telling them what I'm writing. Now, I I come it's from- It's like a checklist. It's like a checklist. Like we're a using it for safety. Thorough, we're using yeah. it to make sure all their concerns are met. Coming from like a therapy school and, come, and really I kind of see myself more as a therapist than a psychiatrist a lot of the time. Like um, it's, it's painful to do that because, you know, it's not it doesn't feel like the magic of psychotherapy to have a, con a computer as the third player in the room um but it, it it feels like a way to be less burnt out less resentful and uh to definitely be progressive on the open notes front yeah alan i give you a great deal of credit a i i like it that idea um i think you're balancing like you said risk versus risk as we do in so many of these discussions which is probably alleviating some of the risk of being burnt out, but as you also noted, maybe risking some of the not feeling like you're completely there. Uh, sometimes, depending upon your practice, it's worth even asking the patient. Uh, I'm not, I, I have to, you have to be cautious at times because I think people read into this as that we are doing whatever the patient requests. That is not what we are doing as psychiatric providers. But I think it's important to know what the patient's, you know, kind of interests are. So I know some people that are just incredibly offended if we even look at a screen. They are, you know, this is, and we've, sure, this yeah. is not just our individual patients. These are, these are anonymous studies from across the country. Patients don't like EHRs. Yeah. <laughs> they don't like 
like seeing us sitting there and typing. So if somebody feels that strongly, then I guess my risk versus risk would be, I'm going to spend every moment with them, no screen near me, face on face, knowing that I may have to end the visit five minutes early to get to work on my note, or knowing that maybe that means in the construction of my schedule, I may see two less patients that day to save time at the end of the day for documentation. And that I think is very provider independent. And I'm not so sure, depending how technology moves, if that won't change throughout your career, but I like the way you're doing it. And my favorite thing, another thing that patients don't like that this could alleviate is they don't like it when they think we haven't read the chart and we're not prepared. So right away by you, by you pulling it forward and even just calling out, Hey, it looks like our big issues last time were nightmares and some worries about not sleeping well, though, just starting there, I think just reminds everybody, I care about you. I'm listening to you. And I paid attention to what we did last time. I think the fact that I think there's this misperception that we just walk into rooms and just start reading up on them in that moment. And that's very offensive to people. Right, right. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR, and we're talk to, talking to Dr. Tony Thrasher, uh, and he, we're talking about documentation and the open note uh, controversy and issue and how we're dealing with it as psychiatrists and psychologists. Uh, Dr. Thrasher, uh, Tony, I'd like to ask you, um, one of the things uh, that uh, I was told, uh, UC's, the UC system, the University of California just kind of um, recently adopted this, is that we should mind our language so, and we don't talk in a lot of um, uh, 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 difficult to understand um, jar. Yes, yes. Uh, where we're, uh, our position uh, uh, has the corner on a certain group of words where only we understand them and they understand certain things for efficiency of communication. And, but they want us to use simpler terms to, to spend more time. Now, that's expanded our charting, I think, in a lot of ways. But what are your thoughts about that, about not using jargon at all? I'm not a big fan. Uh, I think what you're seeing here is a great example of, while the federal government can give us a global rule to go by, how each independent system chooses to somewhat operationalize this may be drastically different. Um, I I think we should be watching our language. I think there's a lot of improvements that we as a field can make in how we document, but I don't think eliminating medically necessary words or what some people may even see as as dumbing down, I don't don't want to do. And the irony is, you know, documentation serves all these different purposes. And yes, getting across to the patient and engaging with them and educating them is part of it, but you're also doing it for billing. You're also doing it for statutory reasons. You're also doing it for handoff communication to your peers. And to be honest, what makes me nervous about that one, Aaron, is if any of my records did come in front of a judge or jury, I think that might be held against me that I'm not using proper medical terminology at times. So I think what you're kind of running into here is that we are being asked as physicians to have all these competing narratives and trying to find a way to put it into a nice digestible piece of information, which is not going to be simple. So I, I get why they're saying what they say, but I would rather document as I am. And then if the patient has any concerns about the words, I would then obviously explain it to them. I, I recently documented something um, that I, I, I think I mentioned ambitendency which is a word that I think I, I had recently learned and I was excited to try to put it in a note because I thought it would reinforce my knowledge of it. I felt smart. It was a little performative. I was trying to kind of show my attending that I knew the word. And um, and there was ego there for sure, right? And, the, and then the attending, when, when she was going over the note with me, said, 
how do you think a court, like, what did you mean by this? And what do you think a court would, would say about this? This is a creative use of this word. And, you know, I think there was, there was some, something to gain there in the sense that I'm working on being clear and, and, and being smart, not sounding smart, or just doing the right thing, not sounding smart, which is great ego work. On the other hand, there's a lot of beauty in the craft and the um, humanities and philosophical aspects, particularly of therapy and psychiatry, that are lost there. And um, I think a lot of people chose psychiatry within medicine and chose psychology, like because of the creative aspects of it. And there's a, there is for me at least there's there's a real loss there too of the conformism that has to result when you're constantly being told that oh how will a court see this? Are you deviating from the standard? Which is another way to say. Are you being nonconformist? And because if you are, we're going to get you. And that that's really how it feels. Yeah, and that's and that's so I'm sorry you're going through that Alan and and I say, you know, with all transparency, I, there are some things that you go through as a uh, resident physician in training that won't be there your entire career uh, once you are no longer in that house staff setting. But it still gives you things to think about, doesn't it? And I am with you. I don't think we should be conforming our language. And in fact, one of my biggest fears with most EHR documentation is people's notes look too much similar. And you'll see that courts catch on that all the time. When they show six notes of yours in a row and they all differ by only one line, right. that does not look good. Right. I have not I have not heard of courts uh, looking at, at language, even if it, to use your word, which I really liked, performative, uh, which is not unusual for any of us, particularly when you're in training and you're trying to find your own way of of stating points. I don't. I've never seen courts look down upon that. Courts, if they're getting to that point, that means they're seeing you in person. That means we're talking juries. That means we're talking depositions. And then I think it's much less about what you wrote and more about how you come off. I know many people that write in beautiful language, but yet also when you talk to them are very down to earth and can get across those points without it coming off uh, haughty, I think, or um, narcissistic. I think that's much more when you talk about courts and they're going to kind of judge you by your documentation. If the case has gotten that far, at some point in time, they're probably going to be talking to you. And then I think you have the, the ability to transcend what your note may just look like on its own. I want to ask you, as long as we're talking about legal issues, so in preparation for um, the more rollout of uh, the general rollout of the open note situation, uh, I got a, few, a couple of trainings, and in a one way, they were kind of opposite. One was advising me, be really vague. Don't put a lot of specific information. Don't talk when they if they do illegal drugs, don't mention the specific illegal drugs. Just say that there's drug use or there's illegal there, there might be illegal drug use or don't. When you talk about trauma, don't say anything specific about their trauma. You got to be really super general about that. Now, as part of I just historically, I've always worked in a, um, a treatment team and putting some of these little particulars really did help the psychiatrist understand what's going on. And so I, I can't imagine not doing that. But then I got another training that said, you need to put have your notes be detailed. Having just format notes and outline and cut and paste notes is terrible in the court system. And that was more in my line of thinking. And so I would like, where do you, where do you come down on this issue? I think, and I promise you, I will answer your question directly. But first, generally speaking, I think this is a good reminder that we are in the very beginning of this era. And as with any large changes in an era, we are going to see some systems perhaps overcorrect, 
uh, too far in, in one pendulum direction and then overcorrect the other direction, then hopefully we find what I call the Goldilocks zone somewhere in there eventually. <clears throat> because yeah, I would much rather, I would rather err on explaining my note and explaining my thought process than having a paucity of details. Because as you well know, in the courts, if you didn't document it, it's not there. So mm. it's very hard to say, oh, I did think about that. Then where is it, doctor? I would much rather explain my thoughts, even if it, even if there's a risk of being misunderstood, at least I have a chance to explain myself than to not have it present. But I will tell you, and this is where each system is going to be so different, depending upon where you're listening to this from and where you practice. I have seen some systems that have taken uh, the course that you mentioned, Aaron, where like their notes have become three sentences. There's nothing to them whatsoever. And I don't think that is sustainable. That's going to bring up its own set of problems and its own set of concerns eventually, if for nothing else, once they start to see their billables. Uh, and I think at some other places, they're keeping it more loose. I know a couple different groups uh, that I spoke to even in the past week that just are as of yet not doing it. And they're kind of waiting to see how other people do it, because how this is rolled what? out, not sharing the notes as of yet. Uh, I'm not suggesting that's the route oh, to take, but I think I think you're going to see a lot of different paths to this, whereas I think uh, it's so nice that we're talking about it now, but I think we are so much in the infancy of what this may turn out to be five to six years from now. Well, one of the concerns with the, um, the, the more vague training uh, ad- advice was that this is so deeply personal information, and once you put it in a chart, and then now everyone... Then, then it's open note. And then, so it's going to get out there and you never know where this information is going to be. So that's why you don't want to say things like illegal drug and trauma and all that. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I think that's the informed consent you have with the patient. Because um, once again, even though we're talking about this as an open notes, assuming, and this is a risk, right? Where it's going to be out there. It's in a portal. So could it be hacked? Yes. These are potentials. Mm. Hospitals aren't. Hospitals aren't known for being hacked, but it does happen. So, but if it's just going to the patient that I do an informed consent with the patient on this, much like I would a medication, this is your knowledge. You have every right to it. Now you yourself just told me that we've talked about a lot of traumatic things today. I'm going to be putting these in the note because I want to remember so I can help you longitudinally, but this may be a note that you don't want to read right away. Or if you are going to read, I've seen some patients that have it read with like a family member nearby or a supportive system. Because once again, I've seen just as many patients that don't want to access it, but they like knowing that they can and that they have the control. And I think that is something else you're seeing that it will probably improve the rapport, the compliance and the follow through. So I just think you'll let them know what's in there. You're very, I think the key is not to surprise people with it. And I think that goes a long way with developing that longitudinal relationship. Speaking of this, it's important to also bring up LGBTQ plus patients and their concerns about what gets shared in their notes, especially if they're minors and their right. parents request to access their no- your notes and that they use different gender pronouns than what they use at home. And not only that, I, I have like a one note that I was looking at in preparation when I was looking at different notes in preparation for this, where it says um their, their preferred phone pronouns, their sexual orientation, their name in red at the top. And then it says, do not tell parents, um, prefers, you know, prefers to keep a secret. And I was thinking like, what if I made a miscalculation about how open notes works for their age range? Or what if like something horrible happens and their parent ends up overriding and asking their permission to get all their stuff because they're in the ICU, you know, <laughs> it's, no, it's I mean, you, times. Tosh and Alan, you both hit upon my biggest 
concern. As somebody who thinks about this, breathes this, and lives this, this is my largest concern is minor patients. Because we've been talking about adults. Adults control their own notes. So they choose to share who they want to choose to share with. Uh, they could put it on Facebook if they wanted to. That's their note to share or not. But we're talking about the vulnerabilities of adolescence. And since we're talking about mental health, we're talking about one of the riskiest times of any individual's lifespan, developmentally, uh, the epidemiology of major mental illness, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, a lot of issues there. So I think that's going to be something, to, to answer your question, Tosha, that I think is going to be markedly more so about how each individual group wants to do it. I've seen some health systems that are not currently sharing it with minors, but are sharing it with adults because they're working through with their risk managers. What is our policy going to be? Are we going to have a cutoff? Is it going to be 12 and under the parents get access to, or is it going to be Anything up to 18, the parents get access to. And some of that may differ state to state mm. based upon your individual confidentiality laws, which is why, depending upon who's listening to this, it may make a difference where you practice and who you practice for as to that specific topic, because I think it's one of the most concerning. Well, can I ask you, um, have when you when your client, when your minor client has been saying something really personal does that give you pause? Do you think like, oh, and this parent, uh, this is a controlling parent. Uh, they might ask for it. Does that give you pause? And It does. And I think that the, the nice short answer there is these are things that we as physicians are having to decide what to document, what not to document. And there's nothing saying that even with the rule of the open note, you can't keep your own separate notes on a case. What is very specific is it can't be the only place where you put diagnosis, treatment, and prognosis. Those three things have to be in the open note. Otherwise, you're still allowed to keep some process on your own. Maybe this is a good place to put that until you can get more information and do a more thorough risk assessment. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we talked about documentation in the era of open notes with our special guest, Dr. Tony Thrasher. Tony, thanks for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And also thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Tosha Yamaguchi and Alan Atkins. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write to us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. You can also listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform, as well as enjoy an extended version of the show. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. <laughs>